Good evening, and welcome to the Revelation Power Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Hopkins, author of Revelation, Authentic Power in an Overwhelming World. And we have started this podcast 156 episodes ago to kind of walk through the book of Revelation. And since then, we've we've journeyed then through Job. Uh, we took some time off for the Advent season and Christmas and kind of focused on the Christmas message of the Bible. And since the start of this year, we've been working our way through the Gospel of John. Tonight, we are in John chapter 13, beginning in verse 18. In the previous section, Jesus said to his disciples, No servant is above his master. No student is above his teacher. And the Bible says that he, he said this to indicate the kind of death he would have to die. All of this about a seed falling to the ground and giving sprout to hundreds more seeds. That makes sense. The whole thing about no student being above his master is is kind of esoteric. It's kind of a, a hidden meaning, but not, not terribly hidden. We can make sense of it. And it becomes clearer in this next section. So I'm going to start reading with verse 18. He just said, uh, if you understand what I'm telling you, then live by it and you'll have a blessed life. I'm not including all of you in this. I know precisely whom I've selected so as not to interfere with the fulfillment of the scripture that says, the one who ate bread at my table turned on his heel against me or turned his back against me. I'm telling you all these things ahead of time so that when it happens, you will believe that I am who I am. Make sure you get this right. Receiving someone I send is exactly the same as receiving me, just as receiving me is the same as receiving the one who sent me. After he said these things, Jesus became visibly upset, and then he told them why. One of you is going to betray me. The disciples looked around at one another, wondering who on earth he was talking about. One of the disciples, the one whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him, his head next to Jesus' shoulder. Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus who he might be talking about. So being the closest, he leaned over against Jesus and said, Master, who is it? Jesus answered, The one to whom I give this crust of bread after I've dipped it. Then he dipped the crust and gave it to Judas, son of Simon the Iscariot. As soon as the bread was in his hand, Satan entered him. Do what you must do. Do it and get it over with, Jesus told him. No one around the supper table knew why he'd said this to him. Some thought that since Judas was their treasurer, 
Jesus was telling him to buy what they needed for the feast or that he should give something to the poor. Judas, the piece of bread still in his hand, left, and it was night. There's a lot at work here. Some of it is intrinsic to the story, and some of it is built into the way that John constructs his gospel. The straightforward part, intrinsic to the story, is that Jesus is foretelling a betrayer. As you and I picture that event, we kind of we kind of remember the old Leonardo da Vinci painting, don't we? The Last Supper. Da Vinci captures this moment when Jesus says there's going to be a betrayer and each of them is asking, is it me? Judas is portrayed in the, in the painting behind the rest of the crowd kind of lurking and pointing at someone else. The only one not asking, am I the one? So just in the interest of catching the picture, this is what's called a triclinium table. It's a three-sided table. So it's a U-shape, not a triangle, but a U. And the servant who was bringing food and drink and refilling glasses could step into the inside of the U-shaped table and reach everybody all around the table from that spot. It was, it was very convenient for serving. Jesus is in the center of the bottom of the U. That was the primary position at the table, right in the middle. To his right hand would be the Benjamin, the Benjamin, his right-hand man. And by all accounts, it seems like this should be Peter, but it's not Peter. It's Judas. Now, the story doesn't explicitly tell us it's Judas, but we can discern that it's Judas. Peter is out of his usual position for whatever reason. I think that the reason is Judas was being opportunistic. Judas, I think, believes, this is just my opinion, but I believe the evidence is that Judas believes that Jesus is about to reveal himself as the Messiah. And Judas doesn't want to miss out. Judas wants a primary place in this new messianic kingdom. And so he has taken Peter's place at Jesus' right hand. I'll show you why I think that in just a moment. Jesus gives this address to the disciples and says, one of you is going to betray me. Now, we don't, we don't know that they all asked, but we can, we can kind of sense that we would. 
And it's likely that everybody around the table was a bit shocked and that John is, that Peter is speaking for everyone who wants to know. We would want to know. The Bible says that John was reclining next to Jesus. Now, when you sat at this triclinium table, remember this is an Eastern culture. It may be near Eastern, but it's still an Eastern culture. culture. It's an Asian culture. And, and their custom was to eat at a low table, only as high, if not quite as high, as something like our coffee table. And, and the table was vacant underneath, had legs at the corners, so you could put your feet and most of your legs under the table, but you didn't sit in a chair. You sat on cushions and more pillows were stacked up behind you so that as you conversed, you could recline back onto the pillows and relax because sitting up on the floor gets very tiresome very quickly. So these men are sitting on the floor around the table, mounds of cushions behind them that they can lean back against. And John is next to Jesus, probably where John belongs. And so Peter, who's out of position, motions to John and says, ask him who it is. So the wording in Greek here is really curious and and it gets translated in all kinds of weird ways that has John laying on top of Jesus or laying his head across his chest. I think really what's it what's at issue here is that he gets his his face closer to Jesus' face. He's whispering. He's asking the question in such a way that only Jesus hears him ask, and he will be the only one who hears Jesus' answer. He, he's keeping this kind of kind of discreet, confidential. So it's not that he's sleeping on Jesus, it's that he's leaning over close like you and I would to get our mouth next to someone's ear to ask them a, a confidential question. And Jesus gives only John the confidential answer. That's why it's in this gospel. And he says, the one to whom I give this crust, once I've dipped it, that's the one. He takes a piece of bread crust, and they it's the Middle East, right? The Near East. So they eat that crusty bread with every meal. It's like an Italian bread. He takes the crusty bread and he dips it into the wine of his own glass. What does he now have in his hand? He now has the elements of what we call communion. He has the same elements that he's going to offer all the other disciples in just a little bit. He has in his hand the representative body and blood. When he hands it to Judas, he is saying, I put my life in your hands. To the disciples, he's going to say that this bread, this juice, 
This wine represents my body broken for you, my blood shed for you. It's not the same with Judas. With Judas, he hands him the wine-soaked bread in a gesture that says, I put my life in your hands. Go do what you've got to do. Notice that Judas doesn't consume that wine-soaked crust, but he holds it in his hand. He has Christ's life in his hands. The disciples hear the instruction that Jesus gives him, and they misunderstand that old Johannine misunderstanding. Oh, he's sending him out to do a task. He's sending him to go get groceries. He's sending him out to give some gift to the poor. No, he's put his life in Judas' hands. And Judas leaves with the bread still in his hand. And the last little phrase there, and it was night. Light and dark, so important to John. Judas is going with Christ's life in his hands for the purpose of betraying him. I, with all my heart now, after years of looking at this and thinking about it from every angle I can imagine, I'm convinced that Judas believed he was doing God's work. He believed the Messiah had to come in order to restore the preeminence and the reign of Israel on earth, that the Romans had to be smashed by the power of God. God was the only one strong enough to do it. That if the Messiah was to come in his lifetime, it would be Christ, and it would be because he called down a million angels to crush the Romans, to to scatter the Roman Empire to the wind, and to reestablish Israel as the center of politic and government and culture and, and religion on the earth. And I think, I believe, that as he leaves that room, he thinks that Jesus has just empowered him to go do exactly that, to set the wheels in motion. And I believe with all my heart that as he leaves that place, he goes out into the darkness believing he's going to do God's work. But the truth is, he's taking a walk in the pitch black. You know why I'm convinced that that's what's going on here? Because I see it happen all the time with church people, with, I'm doing air quotes here, Christians. People who believe that God needs their help. People who believe that that their righteousness somehow affects God. That their holiness somehow affects God. And that if they don't work for God, in God's behalf, if they don't work to bring about God's will 
God's kingdom, God's deliverance, God's judgment. Well, poor old God just isn't capable of getting it done without him. See? If my heart is right, I serve God out of nothing other than obedience. He paid a price for me I could never have paid for myself. He doesn't need me. I need him. He doesn't owe me. I owe him. I serve out of an absolute awareness of my continual need for his mercy, grace, power, strength, will, love. I don't have a thing he needs. I can't help him in any possible way. I serve him out of obedience because I owe him. I was a prodigal in a far country eating pig slop. And when I came home, he wrapped his arms around me and included me in a family I did not deserve to belong to. I owe him more than I could ever repay. That's why I serve. I'm not moving heaven and earth for the kingdom of God. The kingdom moved the mind of heaven for me. Christ stood between the Father's wrath and me, and he absorbed it all. God made him who knew no sin to be absolute sin, so that in him we might become the absolute righteousness of God. In him, not by my efforts, not by my works, not by my ministry, not by my influence, not by my political involvement. I serve him out of nothing but conscious and humble obedience and a desire to somehow pay some tribute to the great love he lavished on me for free. But I see people all the time who go out Fingers pointed, eyes ablaze, hearts on fire, looking to prove something, say something, establish something, conquer something for the kingdom, for God himself. I just went to a political rally where, a, where an absolutely political person went to the microphone and said they were righteousness on fire like their political cause was somehow holy. For crying out loud, it's politics. It's not holy. It's dirty. And the fact that holy people get dirty in it doesn't make it any cleaner. Our priorities get confused when we think that God needs us to go change something. God needs us to go be there. He'll change it. He's strong enough to do what he needs to do to work in this world. He'll use us. All we have to do is show up and be there and surrender our wills and our hearts to him. He doesn't need us to set anybody else straight. 
He doesn't need us to prove some point or to argue his case. I was a kid when Billy Graham was on The Tonight Show, and it was in the days of of the God is Dead movement. And Johnny Carson asked Billy Graham, how do you defend God against all of this onslaught of, of people calling him dead and saying that we don't need a church, we don't need a God anymore? Billy Graham chuckled and said, oh, Johnny, God needs no defense. Exactly right. Judas is misled. In fact, the Bible says a curious thing right here. That when he took the wine-soaked bread into his hand, that Satan possessed him. I can't find anywhere else in the Bible where the Satan, the accuser of the brethren, the deceiver, the destroyer, possesses anybody. Demons, I can find where demons have possessed people throughout the Bible, but I can't find anybody else that Satan himself possesses except Judas. That Satan enters into him. And I think that's what happens with these well-intentioned folks who go about claiming to do God's work while all the time working instead for the enemy and tearing things up more than building things up and, and, and harming more than healing and judging more than redeeming. I think that their intentions are being driven blindly by something very evil. Judas doesn't see it because Judas goes out into the dark. And those in our culture who who are so convinced that they're doing God's work by telling other people what to do, by, by manipulating politics to gain power so that Christian people can be in power. The Bible never calls you and I to reach for power. The Bible never calls you and I to manipulate others so that Christians can have power. Ever. That's walking in the pitch blackness. Judas went out and it was dark. Too dark to see. Too dark to know the right path. Judas has walked out into the darkness. He betrays Jesus in the darkness. And then I think the devil leaves him and he sees Jesus arrested and beaten and mocked. And he realizes it's not going to turn out the way he thought it was. And then he despairs. No longer under this delusion of the enemy, he despairs. He understands what he's done. He looks for remedy by giving the money back. The Pharisees won't take it. And in despair, in the dark, he takes his own life. Friends, it is so important that you hear this. That 
that in our culture there are people manipulating things to, to try and get power for Christians because they think that would be the right thing. That is nowhere in the scripture. Nowhere. And once they grab that power and they have it, they're going to find themselves part of that beast. And they're going to have deep regrets if they still have a conscience left. Or they're going to be absorbed by that power system and lost to it. Do you hear me? It's the wrong path. Oh, there are other betrayers around the table that night. In fact, there are 11 others. Peter's going to be the worst of them by by simple number of times he betrays or denies Jesus. He's going to deny Jesus three times. Everybody else is just going to abandon him once he's arrested in the garden and disappear. The only one you're going to see again besides Peter is John, who's going to be at the foot of the cross with Jesus' mother. Watching, not saying a word. None of these guys are going to stand up for Jesus. None of these guys are going to to step into the gap. None of them is going to make one iota's difference in the whole process of Jesus' trial and persecution and crucifixion. Not one will stand with him. Not one will go with him. Not one will die with him. Peter said, I'll die for you. The worst he does is cut off a guy's ear from behind. No, they're all going to betray Jesus. And Peter is representative of the rest of them. And when does Peter finally complete his betrayal of Christ? When Jesus told him he would. Talk about it in more depth when we get there, but think about what is the signal that Peter's betrayal is complete? It's the crowing of the rooster in the morning. And that's a that that phrase, the crowing of the rooster. Peter, I tell you the truth before the cock crows. That's not just a that's not just a reference to what an animal makes noise. It's it's a reference to a time of the morning when there's a sliver of daylight in the sky. Just a hint. You know which way is east because there's a a faint glow over that way. There's a, a hint of light and that's when Peter betrays Christ. Not in the not in the blackness of night, but when there's a bit of hope in the sky. See the difference? We'll talk more about that when we get there. But but here, the issue is betrayal. Pulled into the story, each and every one of us says, Master, is it me? Am I the one? And regrettably, the answer is yes. Yes, we are.
each and every one of us will at some point fail Christ. No one is perfect. If anyone claims to be without sin, this same disciple John writes later, if anyone claims to be without sin, he's a liar, and the truth is nowhere in him. If anyone claims not to sin, then he makes God out to be a liar. Whoa. If I'm really honest with you, and you're really honest with me, we would have to confess one to the other that we failed. And not just once. There have been times in my life when I've done something, even intending the very best, and it's done. And as soon as it's done, I regret that I ever said it, did it, engaged in it. I realize that even some things done with the best of intentions were the absolute wrong thing to do. They weren't Christ-like. They weren't godly. And I regret them instantly. And it's too late to take them back. And all I can do is, is ask anyone I hurt and God to forgive me. It is a, it is a bitter, hopeless, dark feeling to understand you failed God. To feel like I've let the whole world down. I let down all the people who, who looked to me, who trusted me, who, who, who wanted me to do the right thing. And I failed. I betrayed their trust. I betrayed my Savior himself. There's not a more hopeless feeling place in this world, especially if what you did, you thought you were doing for the right reasons. You thought you were taking care of the kingdom. You thought you were following Christ and the lights come on and you realize you followed something else. Or you just did the selfish thing. Thank God for grace. Thank Christ for the cross. That in those moments when I'm a betrayer, when I have by my actions and words denied that I even know him, set exactly the wrong example, the opposite of what I wanted to do. Praise the Lord. There's grace. And he puts his arm around my shoulders and says, it's okay. This isn't something we can't fix. This doesn't mean I'm done with you. I'll never be done with you. My child, there's still so much to do. I'll bet you won't do this one again. My dad taught me to pitch a baseball. 
I was never very good at it, but we worked hard at it many, many evenings. He'd, he'd get off of school. Uh, he was a school teacher. He'd get done with school. We'd go to the farm and do the chores. We'd come back into town where we lived, and, and as long as there was enough sunlight, he'd, he'd have me throw baseballs at him. And after about the first week of working at learning to pitch a baseball, I wasn't very good. And I knew I wasn't very good. And it was too dark to keep throwing. And he said, well, let's go eat dinner. I felt like a failure. My dad put his arm around my shoulders and he said, don't worry. Rome wasn't built in a day. He said, if you never learn to be the pitcher, it's okay. You're learning to throw harder. You're learning to throw further. Maybe you'll play in the outfield and you'll be able to zip that ball right back in there because you're getting better at this. That word of encouragement that I was doing something better, even if I wasn't realizing the ultimate goal of starting in Major League Baseball from the pitcher's mound, I was getting better at something. And that grace salvaged my heart on that night. And every time I have found myself in absolute despair that I have failed the purpose of God in my life, I feel his arm around my shoulders and I hear him say, come on, let's go home. We're not there yet. There's still steps to take. There's a whole lot you're getting better at. Let this one go. I forgive you. Let's move forward. Let's keep going towards that city, that kingdom. Brush this off. That's the kind of grace I need. That kind of grace was available to Judas, but in the dark, he couldn't find his way back. Peter, with that sliver of light in his life, is going to find his way back. And oh, is that a glorious story. I don't know where you are today. I don't know if you're out wandering in the dark. I don't know if you feel like you failed everyone, especially God. I don't know if your failures have stacked up on you and you can't forget them to the point that it's really dark. If so, can I invite you back into the room? Can I invite you back into the light? Can I invite you to just bring the failure to the light and say, Dear Lord, what do I do with all this? Look at the mess I made of what you gave me. Father, I can't fix this. I need your help. The Bible says that if we confess our sins... He is reliable and just and will, without a doubt, 
forgive our sins. There's no doubt. You're not in any danger. There is no judgment. There is no condemnation. All that stuff that the enemy told you out there in the dark, you were going to have to suffer. That's not true. Just bring that mess to Jesus now before it gets any bigger. Stop tying knots in it and bring it home. When I was a kid, I got a slinky. Remember the the spring that would walk down the stairs once you got it started? My brothers and I all got slinkies. And, And they're wonderful for about two hours. And then they start to tie themselves into metal knots. And my slinky was all tangled up. I had no idea how to fix it. I brought it to my dad. And I said, I think I broke it. He said, no, it's just twisted. And he began untwisting it, straightening it. When he got done, it didn't quite look the same. It was a little bit mangled. It was a little bit distorted. But it worked just the same as it had when it was brand new. It could still accomplish its purposes. It could still it could still function. My life, oh friends, it's a little bit mangled. After 62 years of living on this earth, it is a little bit mangled. I have been I have been to hell and back a couple of times. Didn't learn the first time, had to go back and try it again. I've failed more times than I care to even recount to you. It was a lot. I probably have a couple more failures left in me. But I have a God who has never, ever stopped loving me, who has never turned out the lights on my life, who has never given up, who has never gone away, who has never said, you're no longer acceptable to me. But every time I come back to him, he welcomes me back, wraps me up in his arms and says, you foolish kid, I sure love you. You've got more ways to get into trouble than most people, but I sure love you. No height, no depth, no power, no principality, no force, nothing in heaven, nothing on earth, nothing under the earth can separate us from the love of God. Walk back out into the light of the day in your world and live in that love because you are not needed, you are forgiven and loved.